behind, but I encourage you to look at your Bibles and versions that you have. So Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings, that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then chapter 2 of Hebrews. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made him made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for, who, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I. And the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them 
fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. What an amazing passage. Just brilliant. It's always an encouraging passage because have you ever found yourself in uh, reading or talking to someone or kind of thinking about it and said, I think it says somewhere in the Bible. Have you ever found that? I, I read it some time ago and you kind of like flick the pages and try and find your way back. It's somewhere in there. This great preacher, the writer of the Hebrews, is kind of like, it says somewhere, it's Psalm 8, he's actually quoting, but he couldn't quite put his finger on it. Maybe a senior moment as he was writing uh, the letter or, or as it being gathered together. Um, it's encouraging in that way. But far, far more, it is deeply encouraging about who Jesus is. Heavenly Father, I pray that through the scriptures which testify and declare and announce in beautiful ways the content and focus that is Jesus Christ, in all the ways we have come to know him through your spirit, in the way that you have enabled us to trust in him and put our faith in him, I pray that even this morning there would be another step of faith, another insight, another assurance, another determination in our heart and spirit and mind that he is trustworthy and good and dependable and approachable and here. And just that wonderful thing that he dispels fear, particularly of that greatest barrier about death, that that fear should go. And that assurance, that wonderful, wonderful statement that he calls us brothers and sisters, children. Amazing. Amen. Amen. Not so long ago, we were pulling uh, Christmas crackers. And uh, in amongst it, there was always that little ritual at the, uh, the Christmas dinner table. When you find that little slip of paper, there's always one who's lost it somewhere. Where is it? Where is it? Feeling left out. And you tell the joke, but often they contain a little puzzle. So here's my puzzle for you this morning. There is a link. What can go up the chimney down, but can't go up the chimney up? What can go down the chim uh, so what can go up the chimney down but can't go up the chimney up? Someone said it at the back. An umbrella. Quite why you'd think of that, I don't know. Maybe some child tried and it got so I don't know, or some adult, I don't know. Hebrews chapter one and two kind of have something of that, not umbrellas, but of Chapter 1, it declares that Jesus is superior to everything. He is the Son of God. And for anyone who missed those uh, messages and they're online to listen to again, essentially, he said, even the most astonishing created beings, angels, they are amazing. They are incomparably insignificant to the superiority and wonder of Jesus. Because Jesus is God's Son. 
And that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. That through him, all of creation was made and was brought into being. That everything is because he is. And so don't miss the mark. Don't kind of get distracted. Jesus is the focus. Yeah? It's good to know. But then in chapter 2, there's a little bit of a strange thing. Because if you heard Psalm 8 and you were hearing it in, uh, in Hebrews 2, that for a time, Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Word, is made lower. So what is up comes down. And that's a little bit of a shock. Because the writer, the Hebrews, this text wonderfully, and this is so important because it reminds us that as we come to Jesus, Jesus is divine, he is God, he is everything the Father is in, in, in every respect. They are one and yet three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That when we read of Jesus in the Gospels, we are encountering the Word made flesh. What you see is what you get. That's God. And then chapter 1 of Hebrews, he contrasts angels. I mean, some people have encountered angels. Whenever they encounter them in the Bible, there's a big kind of like, oh my goodness, I'm fearful. And they always say, don't be afraid, fear not. But the Hebrew writer says that angels are just functionaries. They're messengers of God. Whereas Jesus is the Son. That angels are fleeting and temporary. They come and go. But Jesus is eternal. He's uncreated. The angels are part of creation. And that as angels, they're servants of God. They do the will of God. And they're amazing in that. But Jesus is the one who sits in glory at the right hand of God. And even at the end of time... All things are subject to the authority of Jesus. He is superior. Jesus is greater, far greater, and amazing and wonderful and splendid. When you go home later, young people, uh, and you, this may get me in trouble, but you can ask your parents to do something for me. To go on YouTube and search, and adults can do this too, um, a little kind of clip that is by a, uh, a, an American preacher, a very famous clip, some, many of you will hear it, and I'm not playing it in full today, by someone called Dr. S.M. Lockeridge, and he has this clip called He Is My King. And it's about four minutes, and it's astonishing. So ask your parents to remember this for you, test them later that they're paying attention, and uh, tell Phil next week if they weren't, okay? But in it, he says some of these words. I won't try and, uh, uh, and mimic his, his way of delivery. It's just worth hearing. But he said, David said the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supplies. Good language, isn't it? No barriers can hinder him from outpouring his blessings. He enduringly, he's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's import, immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially 
merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that that has crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in the solitude of himself. He's august and he's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature, the highest personality in philosophy, the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. He's the miracle of the age. He's He's, yes, he's the superlative of everything good that you call to, that you choose to call him. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. That's just a little bit. But he gets it right. Jesus is brilliant. And yet, he stoops down. He leaves all of that and enters into our world. And this is the shock of the gospel. And this may be part of the reason behind why there's problems, why there's drifting away in the Hebrews. Why is they kind of making me thinking, let's just take a, back, a step back from this Jesus. It's all got a little bit too hot here. It's all, we're kind of getting persecuted from, from our neighbors and, and the Jewish people who they may have links with. And, and the, the, the authorities are beginning to kind of look at them a little bit more closely and maybe thinking, let's just step back. Let's just take the foot off the accelerator and, uh, you know, and just let's not be so closely aligned with Jesus. Let's just perhaps drift away. And maybe, just maybe, part of the reason for that is because when they hear about Jesus and he's being preached, not only in his greatness and grandeur, and we can all go, yeah, that's got to be God. There's not enough words to describe him. He's great and powerful and almighty and timeless, absolutely. But the shock of the gospel is he becomes a little crying baby. I know Away in a Manger says he doesn't, but I think he probably did. At least he cried in, in John when his friend Lazarus wept. Jesus cried. And that's the shock because Jesus becomes fleshy. Jesus becomes like us. The stuff that gets hurt and bruised. The stuff that bleeds when you get a paper cut and worse. The stuff when the going gets tough, you kind of wonder, where is God? Is it all worth it? I refer to the Garden of Gethsemane, and yet, Jesus prevails. He's oh so real. Oh so just like us. And that always causes a shock because how can that eternal, undefinable, wondrous majesty become like this? Like us. Tired. Gets tempted. Gets ridiculed and mocked. Gets left aside. People leave him and say, (laughs) he's mad. He's dangerous. From the heights of exaltation to the depths and descent of the cross. Peter and John had this amazing moment. It's called the transfiguration. Matthew 17 talks about it. 
that they went up a mountain and, and a cloud hid them and Moses and Elijah. And that's like, wow, what's going on there? But Jesus, it's like they suddenly perceive Jesus as this in his kind of unrestrained glory. He's transfigured before their eyes. And then it doesn't say this. I'm adding a bit to the scripture. Their jaw hits the floor. And then Moses and Elijah disappear, and Jesus is there before them. And, and they're kind of like, whoa. And Jesus says, don't tell people until I have died and risen. How can God Almighty die? It's the scandal and the anathema and the stumbling block. If you talk to people of other faiths, they'll go, that can't be God. But it is. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and suffered and died. Jesus says it in Matthew 17, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. From riches and glory to rags. When he died, they just he, he was naked. They'd taken all his stuff. He didn't have much, but what he did have, they just gambled it away. From the major theme, the beautiful trumpets and, and big brass band and the timpanies booming, he's superior, his right hand of God, to the minor key of he was fleshy and they stripped him of his stuff and of his life and he bled and he died and was buried. mentioned this author before, Tom Holland, not the Spider-Man, but the historian, uh, in the book Dominion. He writes this in his introduction about crucifixion. Exposed to public view like slabs of meat hung from a market stall, troublesome slaves were nailed to crosses. Even no death was more excruciating, more contemptible than crucifixion. To be hung naked, long, this is a quote, long in agony, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulders and chest, and quote, helpless to beat away the clamorous birds that would come to peck. Such a fate, Romans intellectuals agreed, was the worst imaginable. And then this historian, not a believer, but kept encountering Jesus in his studies of Roman history, said this, divinity then was for the, you know, and, and the victors, the strong and the powerful, the Roman emperors and the conquerors. And we see it about Putin and we see it about Trump and whoever we would look. They are the ones who come and are celebrated. They are center stage and center spotlight. And, and everything must go well for them. Because any sign of weakness implies their failures. He writes this, divinity was then for the very greatest of the great, the victors, the heroes and the kings. Its measure was the power to torture one's enemies, not to suffer it oneself, to nail them to the rocks of a mountain or to turn them into spiders or to blind and crucify them after conquering the world 
that a man who had himself been crucified might be hailed as a god could not help but be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous and obscene and as grotesque. This ultimate offensiveness, he writes, though was one to a particular people, Jesus' own. The Jews, unlike their rulers, did not believe that a man might become a god. They believed that there was only one, the one almighty, eternal deity, creator of the heavens and the earth. He was worshipped by them as the most high god, the lord of hosts, the master of all the earth. Empires were his to order, mountains to melt like wax before him, that such a god of all gods might have had a son, and that this son suffered the fate of a slave, that he might be tortured to death on a cross were claims as stupefying as they were to most Jews repellent. No more shocking a reversal to their most devoutly held assumptions that could possibly have been imagined. Not merely blasphemy, it was madness. I wonder how in your spirituality, in your walk with Jesus, which takes precedence, his divinity and power and Godness, or his frailty and vulnerability and approachability and just like usness, yet without sin. I just want to play a little bit of a clip. Uh, this is for the benefit of some of the older ones, but hopefully the younger folk would like it. It's by uh, a, a singer, American singer called Joan Osborne. She wrote this in the 90s, and it's the song called One of Us. Some of you will know it. There is sound somewhere. Okay, so let's just pause there because we've not got sound. And um, another thing to look up on YouTube later. One of Us by Joan Osborne. She, in the song, says, What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us riding on the bus on the way from home. What would you ask him? Just one question. What would you ask him? This sun, this air of all things, a reflection of God's glory, superior to angels, the Lord of all time, yet walks the road of human history on all the mess and the filth that we know so well. He enters in. And willingly submits to the cross. Why? Because no one else can save us. As a theologian of, of a long time ago called Irenaeus, and he, he says it like this. What he did not assume, he cannot save. In other words, he had to become one of us. There's a great illustration of this. It's about him becoming flesh. Imagine you're in a fully dark room. It's quite a big room. You're led into it. You can't see your hand in front of your face. And just on the way in, they say to you, there's a creature in the room. We want you to spread out and using touch, work out what it is. So they go into the room and uh, one of them goes, ah, oh, it's like this big piece of rough paper. It's a bit hairy. 
and it's moving. Another says, no, no, it's not like a piece of paper. It's like a, a pipe with bristles on it, and it keeps moving. Another says, no, 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 it's not. It, it's, like, it's like this tree trunk. I can hardly put my arms around it. Another says, no, no, it's, it's like this little whip-like thing with some really kind of bristles on the back. What do you think they're describing? I don't know. One says, I've got something that is big and flat and flappy. And another says, I've got this wiggly pipe. And another person says, no, it's like a tree trunk. Another says, no, it's a whip. The answer is an elephant. Some of you got that. That's a bit like us trying to conceive God. We'll all experience something of the divine in some sort of way, but we'll all be missing the mark because we don't see the full picture. Jesus comes as the image, the fullness of God, and reveals God entirely. If you see me, he says, you see the Father. This is what I am like. Without a shadow of a doubt. No fumbling around in the dark saying, no, it's this, or no, it's that. He says, here I am. And astonishingly, he comes as a human being, a man. Another person who's very clever told this little story, a Danish theologian called Søren Kierkegaard. And he tells the story of a prince who wanted to find a wife to be his queen. And one day while he was out on an errand doing a job, as princes do apparently, uh, he went through a, a local um, uh, village and his dad, the king, was there. And they passed through kind of a bit of a poor place, muddy and not many people would stop but as the king went past he saw from the windows of the carriage this amazing young woman and he thought that would be an amazing that woman would be an amazing wife for my son anyway he let the prince know and the prince kind of began to fall in love with this amazing young lady but there was a problem. How should he approach her? He could, by virtue of being the prince, order her to marry him. You must, because I am in charge. Would she love him? No. He realizes that in order to be a true bride... She must marry him freely and voluntarily, not because she's made to do it. He thought I could put on my most splendid uniform and drive up to the front door in my carriage with all my footmen and soldiers and drawn by the six most amazingly, astonishingly strong, beautiful white horses. Say, here I am. But if he did this, if he, did this he would never be certain that the love of his life loved him or simply because... She was bowled over by his bling. Not what the word he used. Updating it a little bit. The prince came up with the solution. He took off his kingly robe and garments and left the prestige of the palace and moved into the village. Not the right end of town, but the wrong. Entered not with a big glittery crown on his head, but in the clothes of the peasant. And he lived among the people and learnt 
about their interests and concerns and what it was like and talked their language. And in time, the object of his love grew to love him for who he was because he first loved her. Lockeridge says this not only about the greatness of Jesus he supplies strength for the weak he's available for the tempted and the tired he sympathizes and he saves he strengthens and sustains he guards and he guides he heals the sick he cleanses the lepers he forgives sinners he discharges debtors he delivers the captives he defends the feeble he blesses the young he serves the unfortunate he regards the aged He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meager. In the words of Hebrews, he's someone entirely we can get to know and he knows us. He's not distant. He's not hidden in wherever we are right now. He's close by at hand. He says, come to me. Last year, we preached a series. Come to me all who are weary and heavy or burdened, for I I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Come like the dirty rag that Verity had for the kids. Come like that, because he'll accept you and meet you. And as you put your trust in him, he says, you're my child, my daughter, and my son. Crying in the middle of the night. Does anyone know? Does anyone care? He does. Contending to be living the right ways that you know them to be. And you're finding it so tough to think, shall I? How can I do this? It's too much to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus is right there with you. He says, I know what it's like. I really do. I was tempted in every way just like you are. Let me be your help. Let me be your strength. I remember a a guy called Ian, the church I used to serve in in Leicester. And and one day he came to see me and he, he, he was... He's a chef in one of the most prestigious restaurants in Leicester, kind of top-end chef, lovely food. Didn't come to church, his wife did. Knocked on the door, opened it, he said, can I talk to you? Yeah, okay. I said, absolutely fine, come on in, cup of tea. Always cup of tea, isn't it? He burst into tears and he said, last night I resolved to kill myself. I was a bit taken aback. Why? He said, I've got a secret. I said, oh. He said, I've racked up 50,000 pounds of debt in slot machines. My wife doesn't know, they just had their second baby. And the world is falling in. And the only way out, he rode the motorbike. He said, I know a road and I know a tree. And if I go 100 miles an hour down this straight road, That's what I decided to do. I said, why are you here? I was glad he was there. He said, as my wife slept next to me, unaware, and I was just 
I planned this plan and I got the time and I knew she'd be out and all that. I remembered a song from Sunday school. And the word I remembered in it was Jesus helps. And he's like, why am I thinking about that now? And he just couldn't sleep anymore, but he knew that he had to talk about that if he came to see me. It was a bit of a long road because he had to tell his wife about the dead. But, you know, he and his wife are together and their children are growing up and he's now been baptized and following the Lord. But in that moment of darkness, the Lord drew close and reminded him that he is here and he's not too bad to save. He'd not burnt the bridges. The Lord was there. And this is the wonder and this is the spectacular thing as Tim and the band get ready uh, to give them a clue that we're finishing. You know, all the way through the Old Testament, Moses, when he encountered God, was so changed that he had to wear a veil because he was so like, oh, and they were like, no, we're too unclean. And every time in, in the story of God's people, they drew close to God. They knew he's enormous and holy and powerful and, and they aren't. And it was like, we'll die. He's just kind of like, let's just take a step back. It's too much, too much. And they knew, and God had provided ways for them that occasionally, once a year, they'd come, the high priest would come into the most special place in their center of worship and make things right. It's called atonement. But it was just for one, and occasionally on behalf of everyone, and everyone would say, I hope it goes well, or else what will we do? We're lost, we're abandoned, we have no way to come to God. And I love the fact that God says, I will come to you in Jesus. You know, when he rose from the tomb, it says the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. In other words, God's broken out. And he's close by to every one of us. And says, in however you are, I am God and I'm powerful with all authority in heaven and earth. I can heal and deliver and I've conquered death. No more fear in death. If you're still frightened of death, let's pray for you because it's one of the rights of being a children of God to not be frightened of that. How? Because we know him and he has conquered death and he says, I will transfer you from that, this existence that we know into eternal life with me forever. It's in his responsibility and his, what he can give because he's God. But he's right with you. And he can tolerate and knows you in all your messed up thinking and your habitual habits and all that stuff you're thinking. I don't want anyone to know this about me. He knows, but he doesn't want to leave you there. He wants to make you his child and all that he's intended in your life. Isn't that good news? what was up had to come down in all that he gave up in, in becoming the pauper amongst us the fragile and the just like us because it's the only way he can rescue let's stand together